Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Promo Kitchen Podcast. The PK Podcast is a weekly conversation featuring guest suppliers, distributors, and service providers discussing insights into the promotional products business. I'm Bobby Lee Hugh, and I'm joined, as always, by my good friend and co-host, Mark Graham. Today, we have a very special guest, Craig Morantz. Special. Wow. Special, very special Indeed. guest. Indeed. This is a special interview, too, because this is an exit interview. We don't get very many of these, and everybody knows that with exit <laughs> interviews, you get a whole lot more honest opinion than you would any normal interview style. Folks are just re- reserved, and so anything goes in this conversation. So Craig, with a little brief intro, Craig was VP of Sales for Polyconcept North America, $340 million promotional process supplier servicing U.S. and Canadian distributors. Craig joined Leeds in May 2004 when Aware Marketing Group, a company he founded in 1996, was acquired by Leeds. And one year later, in July 2005, Leeds was acquired by Polyconcept, Europe's largest promotional product supplier. So, Craig, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So, let's start right away, Craig, with what you, your plans in the article that I read sounded fairly open-ended. Do you have you have any big big thing on the agenda this year? Uh, I think the the biggest thing I have is just to do nothing, which is in itself a, a challenge. Uh, you know, not going to the computer to look at email. Um, you know, not not uh, carrying my phone around with me everywhere, waiting for it to ring to deal right. with an issue or an opportunity. That's that's a challenge. Probably the biggest challenge I'll have. And we laugh, but you, you're you're probably serious because I can imagine Mark Graham just shutting down. Yeah, how he, he I don't think Mark Graham could function if he couldn't touch the computer or answer his phone. Well, that's because of you, Bobby. That's because of you. You know, all the emails you send me, just the high expectations you put on my plate. Right, here we go. But yeah, well, I mean, it's actually, it's interesting though. What happens, and I would say it's actually the reverse. It would be in this case Mark's issue because what happens is. When you stop sending emails, emails stop coming in. So what I've noticed is it's been it's only been eight days for me, but the trickle, I mean, it's down to a trickle now because pull off of certain distribution lists that I was on in the company, um, you know, and I've stopped sending emails, so people have stopped sending replies to me. It, right. yeah. You know, it, it's it's very interesting to look at it that way, but it takes. What's tough is to stop sending emails, to stop, yeah. you know, looking for conversations and just sitting back and, and you know, sometimes, uh, you know, the, the challenging part is just listening to the voices inside your head. <laughs> so, Craig, I, I've known you for over 10 years and I've always known you to be a uh, type A, fast moving, fast talking, energetic uh enthusiastic guy and that that's how you built aware that's how you built uh leads uh or sorry poly concept in canada to 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 grow from what seven million sales to like 37 million like it's unbelievable um i'm struck by this this new craig this this new approach and uh, we've talked about whether you're going to go crazy or you've acknowledged that it's a challenge unto yourself, but do you see this as being almost like a new way for you to deal with business? I mean, in 12 months time, you're going to be this, uh, this, this new guy and in the new business that you start, uh, likely not in this industry, will you be any different than the Craig Morantz from 15 years ago, this enthusiastic, energetic, hyper guy? Well, I think, um, I think what I'll, 
for people that know me, they said I had lost that. You know, people said they, there was a lot of people that weren't surprised when I said I was leaving because you get, you know, when you work, uh, whatever it is, you know, whether you're working 40 hours a week, 60 hours a week. And I mean, David Nicholson jokes about that. I take more vacation than any, you know, I, I redefined the vacation policy and poly concept, but you just, uh, you eventually start doing, uh, mediocre work. Yeah. And I felt like I was doing mediocre work and I wasn't as enthused about the industry. Um, and I guess in a way I felt I had done what I could do. And uh, fortunately, and I mean, not everybody's in the oper- doesn't have that kind of opportunity or is in that situation where they can just say, look, I'm not going to work for a year and then I'll figure out what I want to do. Um, dip into uh, the savings and, because I believe at the end of the year, I will be a much more valuable entrepreneur. Because I'll, I'll be, I'll, oh, it'll be re-energizing. Yeah. yeah. Craig, in the article we talked a little bit about, you, you mentioned uh, the three things in the industry you, you think have to change but probably will not. That was a fantastic way to ask that question. I don't know, Mark, I don't know if that was your handiwork. But what the first thing you mentioned was the relationship between the end user displayer, distributor and supplier. Can you comment a little bit more on that? There was too much overhead, too many bodies involved in the process. Yeah, well, I, I think if you look at a lot of industry, uh, I mean, you can look across many industries and there's disintermediation happening. And there's, yeah. there's there and it's, it, it's never the companies that are within those industries that seem to be making the changes. It's, it's these new people that come in. So you look at Zipcar. I mean, I rented a car the other day from Avis. It took 22 minutes at the desk to get all the paperwork done. And, you know, I had to get a child seat and, you know, um, had to come back in. And it, it was 22 minutes. I got a Zipcar the other day. It took three minutes. I went online, chose the car. You know, I went over to the car, it opened, I was driving. And, you know, so I think in, in our industry, um, it's probably going to unfortunately take somebody coming in from outside to make the changes. And one of the things that I see is there's too much overhead in every transaction, mm-hmm. whether it's even just looking at credit cards. So we might have a customer pay us with a credit card and the end users paying you guys distributor with a credit card, right? You know, you're adding in five points, probably just there at a minimum. Um, a lot of companies, you know, we've, we, we, we have 16, I say, we listen to me. I, I have to make, we, <laughs> you have nothing. Right? Previous life. Have nothing. <laughs> I have nothing. I have, uh, yeah, I have a dog. Um, so, uh, you know, at, at, at Polyconcept, there's lots of resources there that are duplicated in many distributors. Yep. And I think, you know, for the, the winning the winning distributor, I think, is going to figure out how to leverage all of their suppliers' resources um, and work on lower margins because they can lower their overhead. Somebody has to lower their overhead. Do you – so that, that's an interesting point, Craig – um, 
Do you think that's going to be Polyconcept or Starline or Ash City or any of these big suppliers? Is that going to be their job or is that going to be the job of the distributor or is that really the job of a service provider? Service provider be able to come in and establish something common that allows for that thing that you just mentioned. Uh, allowing for a distributor to take their payment from Royal Bank via credit card and charging Ash City's card, and then somehow the accounting working out. The reason I, it's maybe a two part question. So there's that question. And the second is that I remember many years ago, we didn't have credit card processing facilities. And we approached a supplier in the industry, and they were interested in in it but it just became an absolute nightmare an accounting mess and i remember that supplier calling us saying listen great idea mark but at the end of the day this is not going to work and i'm wondering if i called up polyconcept right now and said hey i want to cut out the two and a half percent that i'm paying in on my, all my credit card fees and i want to shift it over to your card i suspect i'd probably get some pushback so whose job is that well you give a specific example on the credit card i mean i don't um I don't know the ins and the outs of how that would work, but I think if there was a way that, let's say, let's take that example and you approach Polyconcept and you said, look, I'm paying 2%, you're paying 2%, let's just take one transaction and we'll split the difference. I think nowadays people might be looking at that because an yeah. extra point yep. on millions of dollars of transactions, I'm sure, you know, yeah, it's interesting. To it away. Uh, but going back to your original, you know, the first part of your six-part question is, you know, <laughs> whose job is it? And I, in my mind, it's the job of the distributor because um, I think that they tend to be in a much more fragile situation. Um, you know, they rely heavily on a smaller number of client relationships. Yeah. You know, so you look at the average supplier has uh you know probably uh, the, the bigger suppliers have you know minimum 5000 distributors um that they're selling to uh they tend not to have no supply most suppliers do not have an account even their largest account is not going to be more than 3 or 4% of their sales right um so i think it's the distributor that that figures out how to reduce costs and overhead and really becomes the, a true value added reseller versus, I mean, the, the word distributor means in my books that somebody's buying product, taking possession of it and reselling it. Right. You know, and that's not really, our distribution model isn't that. They're, they're selling it. You know, you know, Mark, you sell product and you rarely take possession of it, right? Yep. You're, you're an agent. Yep. So, um, and, and the amount of money that these agents are making, and, and rightfully so, you know, I'm not saying that they don't deserve to make that, but if you want to, if this industry is going to survive, the end user is going to figure out how to pay less. Right. So it's the distributor that figures out how to reduce their cost to sell, uh, I think is going to win. Or yeah. and, and Mark, as, as you and I have ta talked ad nauseum, I mean, a, a lot about is that, or the the reverse, and that is that the value added from a distributor has got to be significant. 
Yep. It can't just be flow through. And and while we're on this topic, Craig, what what else would you do as a distributor? What would you if you were if you were to start today as a distributor? What are based on your experience? What are some some what's some advice you would give a distributor? Um, I mean that's a that's a a great question and a tough question because I've never been a distributor. Um, uh, I think that techno obviously I think both both of you on this uh, podcast and most of your listeners understand that technology is going to play a very important role and it's taken a long time in our industry yeah um, but it, it, there's a it's a new way of selling and I think actually the distributors that figure out that it's actually a marketing game versus a selling game selling it is very costly right yep. sales people travel yeah. you know cars cell phones hotels all this you know, it, it adds up visits, like to visit somebody, you know, the cost per sale is astronomical. So if you look in our industry, there's some pretty successful large distributors who are actually what I would call marketing firms rather than traditional sales firms. Right. So I, I think that the distributors who can figure out how to sell at a much lower cost, uh, which... Uh, going back to what I said is I think it's more marketing than than salespeople per se. It might be salespeople, but th- they've got to be able to increase the number of touches, and I think that's through technology and and through marketing. Yeah, and that takes from principals and management. It takes a, an understanding that they've got to invest in those tools like they would in your traditional sales force because of that new marketing. I love that comment of yours about marketing. Uh, because that is the new sales force is going to be a combination of that marketing and technology. But yeah. some, something that you can probably speak to, to with a whole lot more effectiveness, what about supplier? You're starting brand new. We have some uh, suppliers of all sizes uh, tuning into the podcast. What advice would you have for them, particularly now that you're exiting? What are some things you definitely recommend they do? Well, I, I, I did mention this in the article is that the risk that I might take is not produce a catalog and be able to channel that money to other marketing activities or lowering, uh, you know, the cost of the products. Uh, I think that it's hard for it's it's hard for a company that's always had a catalog to just get rid of the catalog. Um, but if I was starting new, I would just kind of set that as the precedent. You know, this is this is our model. Um, you know. And the quicker, if we enter with that's the way that you see our product, I think we would uh, do okay with that. Um, but I think it's harder to tell somebody, it, it's hard to take things away from people once they've had them. So in light of that, do you, uh, do you, what, what do you think would happen to Poly Concept if they decided to save the millions of dollars that you guys must spend on the design and production of your printed catalog if you guys shut it down? For 2013, yeah, have a massive impact on sales. Yeah, well, I don't know about massive. I think there'd be an upheaval, and um, it's hard. It's one of those things that it's hard to uh, monetize the risk, so you don't take it. Right. Try to reduce. You try to reduce. Like every year, um, we had printed fewer and fewer catalogs. Right. Um, But conversely, we're spending more and more. 
on our website. But you're right, it is, it's millions of dollars. Yeah. Millions of dollars on trade shows. Yeah. And all of those costs go back into what suppliers have to charge for their products. So again, you you look for ways to reduce costs. It's important to to see your customers at trade shows, but um, you know when, when you're talking about eight kind of eight major shows a year, it, it's extremely expensive. And the right. same thing is with um, uh, with the catalog. You know they just forget the cost to print the catalog, shipping out every single catalog. It's yeah. five dollars every time somebody asks for a catalog. You know, you're spending five or ten dollars to get it. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I think that would be one of the things um, that I, I probably that would be kind of the risk that I would take. Should I start a supplier company? Which you won't, because Which you're out of the industry, right? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> um. You know, Craig, I suppose that it's it's safe for you to address or to answer this question, but to, to some extent, we've been dancing around this whole question about the value that distributors play in the supply chain and whether uh, whether you call us agents or marketing firms or sales uh, sales distributors, however you want to call us, do, do you... Did you see the structure of this industry really making sense? I mean, why why does Poly Concept in North America? I know that they've got more of a direct relationship in Europe. Why don't they just open the doors and say, "Okay, Coca Cola, we're ready for you," and cut out the Robins and the right sleeves of the world, or let the Robins and the right sleeves survive if we can truly offer that value? I mean, I, I don't know how far you want to get with this, but it is a white elephant. Um, well, let me. I'd like to start by correcting you on. You said it's different in Europe, where Polyconcept has a more of a direct relationship. That is not true. Polyconcept, PF Concept in Europe sells only through distributors. Okay. So, uh, and that has come up before. Uh, you know, that seems to have been a rumor at one point, but the model in Europe is the same as in the U.S. where the suppliers sell through distributors. The difference and what's changing is uh, the suppliers never decorated before. Right. So they'd sell blank product for dis- to distributors and they would go out to third-party pad printers or embroiderers. Right. And I'm probably going to get the percentage wrong, but, you know, as a salesperson, you just need to make stuff up. So I will. Um, <laughs> it's somewhere in the 50, 50 to 60% of the orders that PF ships now are decorated. Right. And so that's been a big change and a big investment. You know, with their acquisition of leads, they learned a lot about decorating and we were able to help them build a, a decorating facility. Right, right. Okay. Um, so to talk about, I mean, the role of the distributor, I think will always be an important role in this industry because, you know, you say like Coke, like why don't we just sell direct to Coke? Well, you know, we don't have... We don't have the infrastructure, the sales force to possibly call on all of these end users. And then they want a golf ball and then they want a t-shirt and then they want a calendar and then they want chocolates. I mean, even though people joke that Polyconcept, you know, covers uh, every product in the industry, you know, they actually don't. So I think that 
the, the concept of the distributor or reseller model is important. Um, you know, there, there's hundreds of thousands of end users to, to call on, and um, the majority of the business comes from small businesses. Yep. So we get orders of, you know, every day that who knows what that logo is and how would they have found us. So I think the reseller model is the right model. But going back to my initial point is, um, especially for the large Fortune 500 um, customers, is, you know, if they really knew that, you know, the, the markup that, a supplier makes, and then the markup that a distributor makes. Um, I guess I'm surprised that when they do these cost plus uh, yeah. uh, RFPs, right. that they're only putting the cost plus on the distributor. Right. <laughs> but they're not forcing that further down, which right. is hopefully there's no procurement people listening to them. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe that's what I'll do. I'll go consult uh, as for procurement. There you go. Yeah, that's right. That's glad right. glad really we could help. Glad we could help. Yeah. Rebate yeah. or something there, right? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> uh, so I think that the, the right model is the reseller model. I just think you've got you've to find ways to add value. And one of the ways to add value is to reduce the, the cost that uh, these end users are paying. So, Bobby, let me ask you a question. So you... Bobby at, at at you know Robin, you have created this this great warehouse model where you do these fulfillment programs, pick and pack programs, a lot of company stores, mm-hmm. and I, I mean, I think what Craig is saying is extremely valid. How does that relate to 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 your model when you're when you're uh, looking at all the costs that go into paying your warehouse staff and all the logistics fees when you're putting together these big programs for your Fortune 500 companies where you're buying from leads and 20 other suppliers and, right. and, and, and how it is that you justify the value that you bring to the table. Well, because... The cost you have to charge your clients. Right, because it gets exponentially even more expensive. Um, but it's a, it's a little different model in that the customer is looking for um, a, a managed system. They're no longer as much fixated on the unit price of a product as they are a holistic management system. So, um, a lot of the other, a lot of different features come into play. Um, you know, the brand compliance and just uh, the, the overhead and managing it. A lot of these companies, particularly with the downsizing that occurred, um, a lot of folks are not wanting to have their own personnel tied up in managing these kinds of things. So, um, you know, all of this, all of this, what what Craig is saying, I think is is a big lesson for distributors. Uh, obviously, uh, I loved hearing what he had to say naturally, but also you and I have talked about this quite a bit, that the value proposition that we we add, like Mark, I know you guys are really keen on creative services, and that just isn't the normal creative services that most distributors say they are creative when they can go do an ESP search. That's creative on top of your typical sourcing. Um, in, in our case, and it is the fulfillment, the warehousing distribution. It was all that that uh, added value. So we're we're adding value to your typical one color imprint mug. You are right. adding value to the typical one color imprint mug. And forgive me if I'm laboring the obvious, but there but there may be some new distributors tuning in, and I think that's huge because the gap that's lead, that's going to be there, the four imprints are going to fill, the branders are going to fill. I think those folks are going to fill that gap. I don't know that I answered yeah. your question. I got way off on a tangent, but. 
No, no, it sounded awesome, actually. <laughs> yeah. It sounded very nice. <laughs> right, um, right. I know somebody that calls that gobbledygook or something like that, you know, and people right. just <laughs> no offense. I think it's that, and, and you know, you know, to challenge you on that is, I mean, there are, there's going to be the buyer that wants to pay for the value add, and then there's going to be the buyer who doesn't want to pay for the value add, and right. that's a very hard thing for the same distributor to, to deliver on. Oh, I agree. You can't. You you can't. You have to say no to the wrong type of business. Yeah. And Mark, you've said that for forever. Uh, well, I, I, I've been, I haven't been in the industry as long as you, Bobby, but, uh, you know, coming up to 13 years now, I made a ton of mistakes at the very beginning. I, I took those orders at low margins right. and, and was acting really as a flow through agent. And it really wasn't how I wanted to build an enduring business. So, um, I, I think Craig, you're, you're certainly speaking to, to people who really understand this, but it's, it's also good to be reminded of it, particularly from a supplier perspective. But Craig, I think, um, yeah. I think if I can, I think you, I think you hit it. I, there are so many different types of buyers. We'd love to quantify all buyers in a certain way, but frankly, there's all types. There's very small businesses. Um, there's there's plenty of very small businesses as distributors, but there's also a lot of small uh, businesses, supplier of, of clients. Um, but but it, you know, you look at the different makeup of distributors, and many of them, their business now. Um, like the hedgehog principle, they've kind of uh, provide their core competencies to a group of clients. They've attracted clients that like clients. So Mark has probably a lot of creative type clients. And so what you hit, I think, was very important for us distributors to remember is it's a very fragmented client community out there with all different types of needs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's, it's true, and it's the same thing from the supplier to the distributor. I don't think quite as fragmented, but there uh, are there's distributors that have different needs and require different types of or more handholding in certain areas. Um, there's distributors that have you know orders that tend to be more. Uh, costly, just to handle, right? Like, I mean, the cost to serve, which is a very hard thing to measure, and we never perfected it. But you know, we would we would see that this customer costs us, you know, two uh, percent more than this customer, just based on all of the phone calls and yeah. you know, marketing materials. Um, yes, yeah, so I think there's fragments on on both sides, but on the distributor side, you're definitely. Uh, the segments, there's probably, if not dozens, potentially hundreds of segments, but probably right. probably close to dozens. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, Craig, I, I've got I've got one I've got one more question for you. Um, in the interest of of keeping this at a manageable length of time, yeah. uh, you as 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 discussed before, created this great business in Aware, and uh, where you were. The the, uh, the 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 key entrepreneur, the one who was really the driving creative force behind the growth of that business. Um, you then moved over to Leeds and sold your business, and it was a great transaction. Are you surprised that you stayed for as long as you did, uh, given how entrepreneurial you are? And I think that the question really comes more for the entrepreneurs that are listening to this and going from this uh, uh, wildly entrepreneurial ride to a more structured, conservative, much larger global organization where you might not have the same opportunity to play entrepreneur. Um, so 
Can you talk yeah, a little so, bit about that? Sure. Um, so the first part, how you kind of started it was, did I think I was going to be, I think you might've said last that long or, or yeah. stick around that long. And, you know, I think in any situation, when you look back, you really don't remember what you were thinking. I think, I think I should start a journal because I, I have no idea. So not what I was thinking last week. So when I think about it, I don't remember thinking, okay, this is going to last a year or it's going to last two. Um, but I probably, if somebody said to me that time, do you think you're going to be there for seven years? I would have said no. Yeah. Uh, and I think that it, it worked for a number of reasons. Um, and, and I'll start with the benefits that I got out of it. You know, I had grown a company to $15 million and I had a hundred plus employees and I was going into a company that was <clears throat> like about 120 or 140 million at the time. And so I had a bigger sandbox to play in. And I, what was really important was that I had a lot of smart people around me and I'm a guy who likes to learn. And although it was challenging at times, you know, making so many decisions by committee, going from somebody who just made the decision and made it on the fly to, you know, meetings after meetings to make decisions and multiple people weighing in on it. Um, that was tough, but I learned a lot around decision-making and using data uh, to make decisions instead of just gut instinct. And now I call myself an executive entrepreneur because I've got this, you know, almost call it an MBA uh, training, but I got that after growing up as an entrepreneur. Right. right. So I think there's a lot of benefits. If you, if you sell your company that you look at your new partner and you don't just think about the money you're going to get, but what, how, how is this partner going to enhance your skill set? Yeah. And I think I got, uh, uh, you know, working with David Nicholson for uh, seven years um, was, you know, really, I took a lot away from that. Yep. Um, and kind of going to the other part, I didn't really ever lose that entrepreneurial spirit because Leeds didn't have wasn't led by an entrepreneur. So I became kind of the, you know, in-house entrepreneur uh, uh, or entrepreneur in residence. And I was in a different city, which also helps, right? Like, you know, I'd I'd visit Pittsburgh, but um, I still was able to have my independence and um, autonomy. And you know what? Michael Bernstein and David knew that and they, they, they work to that. I think yeah. they they recognize that, and they got really good work out of me because of that. Yeah, that's a good answer. I like this whole idea of the executive entrepreneur. It's almost like this concept of entrepreneur 2.0, and and I suspect will probably influence how you start your next business. Yeah, no, in, I, in a year's time, of course. Yes, in in a year's time. Yep. Uh, it's it's huge, and uh, I talk about it. I've got it on my LinkedIn uh, profile. That's how I describe myself. Um, so I think you can take a lot away from being a small, medium-sized business entrepreneur to um, rolling that into a much larger company. But I think you got to figure out up front who are these people, and even if you know you talk to them about it. 
I think now knowing it in advance, again, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty, but um, it just happened to work out that way. Nobody planned that. And um, I don't think it works out that way for a lot of people. Yep. Yep. Bobby, what do you have to say? You have, what, uh, any more words from you, Bobby? No, any, uh, not at all. I think this has been fantastic, Craig. We really appreciate your time. We really do. Again, and the, the, the content has been wonderful. Yeah, no, my pleasure. That's, uh, you, you know, Craig, we were, we were talking uh, before. Uh, we, we'd certainly love uh, to check in with you, you know, in, in, in a few months if you wanted to uh, update us on your journey. Maybe you'll be on the beach in Mexico or something at the time, but at least we can fire it up on Skype. Yeah, Mexico's a little close. We'll be in Bali. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, I'm actually looking. I've got on my desk right in front of me the Lonely Planet book on Bali. So, uh, yeah, I leave, on, I leave on Monday for seven weeks. Nice. Awesome. Awesome. That is fantastic. Craig, safe travels. Mark? Thanks. Good talking to you. And, Absolutely. Uh, until next time, Craig, we wish you all the best. Thanks, guys. All right. Take care. <laughs>